Thank you, Pastor Ben. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 11. And as you're turning to Acts 11, just a word of thanks to our church, to so many other churches. Uh, just so you're aware, uh, brothers and sisters, that um, this semester we are ministering to 21 different churches that are represented here in the seminary. And it's scattered a number of places, and that doesn't count what you heard from uh, testimony all the way from the Philippines. But those specific uh, churches that are sending students here to study God's Word uh, is a significant and overwhelming weight that we feel. And so part of the convocation is for us to share this weight with you. So we want you to take it on your shoulders as well. And we want you to pray with us and for us that our words would be proper words, our actions would be proper actions, and um, if you would do that, that would be a great blessing uh, to me. I don't know if you are able or not, but if you are, uh, for the public reading of Scripture, would you please stand with me as I read to you a, a most incredible passage of Scripture that relates to a church that has influenced my life over these 40 years. It's the church at Antioch. Verse 19 of chapter 11 says this, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks and proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch, who, when he arrived, he saw the grace of God. He rejoiced, and he began to encourage them all that with a purpose of heart they remained true to the Lord. He was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a considerable crowd was brought to the Lord. Then he left for Tarshish to search for Saul. And when he discovered him, found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it happened that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a considerable crowd. And the disciples were first called, what's the next word? Christians in Antioch. Now in those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and indicated by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine over all the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And as any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a gift for the service of the brothers, the Jewish brothers living in Judea. And this they did sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Father, we uh, stand in your presence, and as your word speaks, so your voice speaks to us. It moves us. It transforms us. It causes us to have our eyes move away from our problems and our sphere, our world, and to put them on something much greater than ourselves. We have a purpose Our purpose is not comfort and it's not retirement. 
Our purpose is to be called by the King of kings and the Lord of lords to enter a world for which God loves and for whom Jesus died and a world in which the Spirit convicts to bring people to believing so they will turn to the Lord. So, Lord, you have given us a wonderful opportunity as a local assembly. These people and the churches that are here represented at this very moment, these people, these churches have banded together so that we might be able to sharpen future servants for global ministry beyond just this city. You have not called us to a city. You've called us to a world. So I pray that you would help us to see in just a few moments the truth that we see from the, the narrative of Antioch, that we might be the kinds of individuals that bring you high honor and pleasure. Thank you for these moments. Challenge us through your word by the dynamic of your spirit and for the glory of your name and for no other reason we ask this. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When I look at verses 19 and 20... I'm, uh, I'm overwhelmed as I consider uh, what's here in front of me. And I think to understand what's taking place with the church of Antioch, you have to also understand its place in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a period of about 30 years. Luke, who was the author, wrote two books. Volume 1, the Gospel of Luke, that's about 30 years. And Volume 2, the book of Acts, that's about 30 years. So when you read Luke, you're reading 60 years of ministry going from Zacharias and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist all the way through to the Apostle Paul being incarcerated for preaching Jesus Christ in about A.D. 62, which is Acts 28. So when you consider what is taking place in the progress of Revelation, it is overwhelming to me, brothers and sisters, to come to chapter 11, verse 19. I love how our pastor is preaching from the book of Titus, because this dovetails right into what's happening here in chapter 11, verse 19. And that's this. First of all, something very difficult. It says there was a persecution of Stephen. We know that back in chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Acts. He was killed for his faith. And so we are aware of the tribulation. The word persecution in your biblical text is the word philipsis, which means a a a tribulation, a, a, a gut-wrenching, can't-breathe kind of moment. So when you look back at chapter 8 and verse 1, and you don't need to do that, but let me just read that verse to you. This is what it says, chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement in putting Stephen to death, and that day a great tribulation began against the church in Jerusalem, and the believers are all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. I mean, that's 8, 1. And so now in chapter 11, verse 19, they are scattered, and as they are scattering, they are making their way to all kinds of places through the womb of tragedy comes the castle of grace. That's usually how it works. So when Jesus talks to us in the Gospels about what he wants from us as disciples, he's going to tell us these things. And I think Greg summed it up very well. You know, I'm living this life this American dream, and then all of a sudden I'm confronted with the reality of what it means to be a disciple, to take up your cross, to deny yourself, and say, yes, that Jesus is my Lord. 
So this moves us in a world that is complacent and contentious. Complacent about Jesus Christ and contentious against him. And so God deposits his people for a purpose. We are here, brothers and sisters, by the design and the determination of God. He didn't put us back there in the 1800s. He put us here at this moment in history. And now we must fulfill the purpose that God has designed for us. And I I love the way that this text works itself out. Because if we're looking for an easy path, you can see in verse 19, it's not going to happen. The tribulation made a lot of people homeless. And so these homeless people are beginning to make their way in so many directions. As you'll read in chapter 18 of Acts, a couple, a homeless couple, are come in contact with Paul. Aquila and Priscilla are their name. And God does some amazing things with this couple. So when I look at the text here, I want us to see the place that, that's taking that, that where Antioch is finding its place in Acts. And so in chapter 10 and chapter 11b, you have God moving the gospel to a, a large contingency of people, which most of us belong to. They're called ethnics. They're called Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And so when the gospel goes to this military centurion, I mean, just, just think of this, this Amazing story of this Gentile who calls, if you read chapter 10, he calls all of his friends and his relatives. He packs the house. Then he goes and sends three of his people to go get Peter and come. And so Peter comes to a packed house full of Gentiles, full of military people. And Peter begins to preach. And what happens is incredible. The Holy Spirit just fell, pressed upon them. Before Peter could even finish his well-thought sermon. I mean, didn't get the point three. I love that. I just love that. It's such a blessing. And God does something that's amazing as this first Gentile comes to Christ. Uh, It caused a great ruckus. In fact, look at chapter 11 up in verse 1. You're here in 11. Look at verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. They heard, hey, the ethnics are receiving scripture. Verse 2. So Peter makes his way to Jerusalem, coming from Caesarea where he was had this amazing ministry. And those who were circumcised took issue with them and they said... How come you baptize Gentiles? Is that what they said? Absolutely not. How is it that you could eat with ethnics? Nothing here about baptism and the faith and salvation. It's all about you did the unthinkable. Eating with Gentiles. So Peter explains to them what's taking place. He tables fellowship. In this first century, I wish we had more of it here. Table fellowship is an idea of of participation with one another. Having somebody in our home, sitting down at a table. The day is done. And so we come together looking at one another for strength, for encouragement. It's It's an idea of acceptance, of putting your arms around one another. Making this meal and sharing it with people that you want to spend time with. 
Spend time with ethnics? Really? So I love what the Apostle Peter does as he rehearses for them. And we can't go through the story, but drop down, if you will, to verse number 15. I love the way he ends the story. It says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell. There's that same word. Fell upon them. It's a beautiful word. It's the word that Mark uses to press. It's a, it's a, it's a term where Jesus is healing people in Mark 3.10. He's healing people, and as he's healing people, people are, 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 you know, they're free of what, their infirmity, and so everybody else is just pressing on Jesus. Please touch me. I want to be healed. That's the word here. The Holy Spirit pressed. He pressed upon them. Just like he did at us at the beginning, at Pentecost, chapter 2. I mean, it was all the work of God. (laughs) The Holy Spirit's doing this. And I remembered, verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, catch that? Jesus used to say over and over again. What did he used to say? John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, verse 17, God gave them the very same gift he gave to us also after we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So who was I that I could hinder God's way? I mean, you're coming after me because of table fellowship, but in reality, there's, there's a dart here, and the dart is, can, can God care about the world? Does God care about ethnics? Does God care about people who are outside of the covenant of promise that Abraham had back in Genesis chapter? I mean, is God working this way? With that thought, I want you to go back to chapter 2 real quickly, please. Acts chapter 2, when 3,000 Jews in the day of Pentecost accept Christ as Savior. What I love about Acts chapter 2 is the theology that is in embryonic form that Paul will develop in the book of Ephesians. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. This is the people hearing the Pentecost message by Peter. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brothers, what are we going to do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Start there. Each one of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ on the basis of your forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then verse number 39, he reaches deep into Isaiah 57. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Those way in the distance as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. That phrase is highlighted verbatim by the Apostle Paul. So would you go with me to where he did that in Ephesians in chapter 2? Would you quickly turn? Ephesians 2. And when the Apostle Paul is writing to Gentiles, he's going to refer back to this amazing prophetic statement from the Old Testament Scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you were Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is really a performance by flesh, by human hands, 
Remember, verse 12, that you were at that time, you know, being Gentiles, without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Christ, is our peace, who had made both groups one and broke down that dividing wall of partition, abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself, Jesus, he might create the two into one new man, making peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God, through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. enmity. Here it is, verse 17, Isaiah 57. And he came and preached the good news of peace to you who were far off. And now, peace to those who are near. So, brothers and sisters, when you look at the theology in Acts and you see how it's fleshed out, if you want to turn back to Acts chapter 11, you see how it's fleshed out. What is taking place is this. Back at Pentecost, there was a message preached, which Peter gave in this message, that God is going to send the gift of the Holy Spirit to all who believe in Jesus Christ. And this is not only for those who are very near. You are Jews in the covenant. You grew up going to the synagogue. You grew up of hearing of Yahweh. You grew up in a world that's far different than most of the world. You who are near, you need the blood of Jesus Christ, just like those who are far off. Because the issue has never been how religious you are. The issue is your relationship with Jesus Christ. This is the issue. Our issue is not being a Democrat or Republican. Our issue is not getting a shot or not getting a shot. Our issue is not any of those exterior things. Our issue is this. Brothers and sisters, we are tied together because of Jesus Christ. We are committed to being everything he wants us to be without, as Dr. Leonard prayed, without distraction. We are distracted, brothers and sisters. We're distracted. So I think it's good for us to come back to Acts chapter 11 and see that in the midst of this progress of the gospel, God is going to do something that is absolutely incredible. Now, I think I have one slide up there, don't I, don't I on a, a map. Can you put that up? There you go. Can you see that? I cannot see it from here. So it's, it's great because you can't see clocks from here and you can't see maps from here. It's wonderful. Um, but if you look way down south in, this, in here, you, way down south, you see Jerusalem. And if I were to draw just a little tiny line over to the, the plain of Sharon and, and go up, there's a little jetty there, and that's where Mount Carmel's just in this area of Caesarea. It's, it's in the land of what we call the land of Israel. But if you go back down to Jerusalem and you go all the way up 300 miles straight north, you'll see Antioch of Syria or Syrian Antioch, I think this map actually says. I mean, it's one thing to look at chapter 10 and chapter 11a 
and, and okay, there's a real nearness here. In fact, Cornelius, when you read about his testimony, he had a good, he had a good testimony even among the Jews in his area. But now we're talking here about something that is explosive. We're talking about the gospel moving out of the land of Palestine, moving 300 miles north to the third most powerful city in the Roman Empire. We know the city of Rome, that is the political power. We understand that. We know the city of Alexandria, Egypt, that's the intellectual power. From there, we probably got our Septuagint. There's a library there of over 500 volumes by the 3rd century B.C. I mean, an incredible place. Mathematicians, scientists, philosophers. Alexandria, Egypt was the intellectual power of the world. Each of these have a have a population close to a half a million. And the third one is the one right here, Antioch of Syria, founded by Alexander the Great. This particular city was a city, and you can notice the waterway. And that waterway leads right out into the Mediterranean Sea. So it made it extremely wealthy. I mean, there are all kinds of stories. We don't have that for this morning. You can read about it on your own, Google it, whatever you'd like to do. But the point is, it's at a a specific location where it was a melting pot for all kinds of ethnics and, yes, even Jews. It was wealthy. It was well known throughout the Roman Empire. And so into this particular beach town, it's almost the size of Virginia Beach, 480,000 people, Virginia Beach. It's like us. And there's no church. There's nobody meeting on Sunday singing the glad songs of the redeemed. So into this pagan world come who? Look what the text says. Thank you for the map. Look what the text says in verse 19. They make their way, those who were scattered because of the persecution, they make their way to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and to Antioch. Cyprus was about 100 miles off the Phoenicia there out in the water in the Med Sea. And they're speaking the word known Jews only, but there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Well, we know where Cyprus is, but then think of Cyrene. Cyrene is northern Africa. So some of these believers, because of the persecution of Stephen, were they living at that time in Jerusalem, and so they had to, be, they had to extricate where they were living and move away. We don't know all of the things, and what's really cool is we don't know their names. God only works with people, some say, because they are a pastor. They are, they have a something behind their name with a, an anacronym that shows that they are educated people. Men and women, there is nothing like that here in the text in verse 19 and 20. These are just individuals that had been captivated by Jesus Christ, that were motivated by the Spirit, and they were just stopping everywhere they go. They're looking, many of them, probably for a place to stay for their families. And as they are going, while they are going, they are sharing Jesus Christ. And I love what verse 21, 22, and 23 state. Verse 21 says, God's hand is with them. You got it? What What a... That's a term that's not found often in the New Testament. It's found in the Old Testament. At times, you can read through that, but it's a, it's a special term. But let me just take you back to chapter 4, after the first persecution, if you want to turn back to chapter 4 of Acts. That first persecution, and Peter and John are really in a, a bad way, and, and they, they get out, they're threatened, and they get out. And so they come together with the brothers and the sisters. And as they come together with the brothers and the sisters... 
they begin to pray, verse number 24. They lift up their voices to God. They begin to pray. It's an amazing prayer. But if I could just cut right in to verse 27. For truly in this city, that's Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with all the ethnics and all the peoples of Israel. In other words, everyone's against Jesus. Verse 28. And they did to him whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur, marked out beforehand was going to happen. Verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to what? Not bring judgment because they don't hold my political view. Not bring judgment because they, you don't know how my boss really affected me. I'm not now going to be able to take the next step. You don't know what my neighbor said about me to his neighbor, to her neighbor. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders happen through your name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed this kind of prayer and they did it earnestly, what happens? Verse 31, the place where they were gathered together was literally shaken. They are filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak the word with great boldness. See, the hand of God in verse 28 is identified as the purpose of God, the power of God. God can do what he wants. In verse number 27, the hand of God allows Jesus in the the city of Jerusalem to have everyone against him, the ethnics and the Jews, Herod and Pontius Pilate. They put him on a cross. But in verse number 28, that's what you had already purposed was going to happen. Now extend your hand, and would you now crucify all the ethnics and the Jews for us? No. Now would you extend your hand, and let's see just the opposite. Let's see healing. It's a really unique term that you used here. And the construction is unique. But I give this to you, if you want to go back to chapter 11, I give this to you because, brothers and sisters, when we consider what's taking place here in verse 21 of chapter 11, it says the hand of the Lord was in them. I want you to understand the hand of the Lord was upon them. And it was upon them for a purpose. And that purpose is revealed in verse 21. A large number of those in Antioch who believed, who expressed faith, the text says they turned. I love that word. They believe, they exercise faith. And the word turn is an interesting word, epistrepho. It's the idea of you're going one direction and all of a sudden you make a U-turn and you're going a totally different direction. Another word we could use to help understand and magnify this term is this. They were transformed. They're transformed. They were so transformed that, look at verse 22. News about them reached the ears of of the church of Jerusalem. And this is without Fox and CNN. 
This, how, do, how does news travel 300 miles all the way down, all the way, because there's a lot of people who are connected with this city, Antioch of Syria. It's a very wealthy city. A lot of things going on up there. So there's a lot of people down here connected to that city, a lot of people connected here, business, life, all kinds of things. And they're coming back, and the church of Jerusalem is hearing this. You won't believe what is happening in Antioch with the gospel of Christ. There's a transformation taking place. And I love the metaphor. Did you catch the metaphor that Luke uses uh, in verse 22? News about them reached the what of the church. What does your text say? The ears. It wasn't there's a big ear on the outside of the building or a satellite dish. It means that people all over who are part of the church of Jerusalem are hearing friends, are hearing individuals. Hey, and they come together, and when they come together, they're talking, you know what I heard? I heard the, I heard the gospel is alive in Antioch. No. Yeah. Then verse 23. What does it look like to have transformation? That's this. Well, verse 22b The church of Jerusalem, after hearing about this, they send Barnabas, a whole delegation, I think, not just Barnabas, but a delegation of individuals off to Antioch. And when he arrives, what happens? He sees something. It's the grace of God. How do you see a doctrine? How do you see a doctrine? They don't have placards on on the front. We are people of grace. Signs are not posted out there. People of grace. You see, what happened, brothers and sisters, and so sweetly, is that God began to move through unnamed people. And as he moves through unnamed people, these people begin to share. And the hand of God, the purpose of God, now takes place. And the purpose of God begins to move in the third most powerful city in the Roman Empire and people who are wealthy and immoral are having an absolute change of life. It's dramatic and it's specific. So that when you see verse number 23, they arrive, they see the grace of God. And what does he do? It says two things. Number one, he rejoices. I mean, what do you want to do? You want to stop and sing? Yes, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And then what does he do? Knowing how life is, this is what he does. I want you guys with purpose of heart to continue clinging to God. Don't let go. This is something special. This is something sweet. This is something powerful. This is something that only God can do. But very easy. You can be distracted. And men and women, we are distracted. We are distracted from the call of God and the purpose of God upon our lives. If it's for comfort, we're in the wrong business. God has called us to this time in history. Let's fulfill our call from God at this time in history. And it's not that everybody goes to seminary, but I'll tell you what. Every single person here knows how to get on their knees and pray. So Barnabas does something neat. Um, he's a good man, verse 24. He's full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's there and very important so that you know that every move he is making, making, the Holy Spirit is leading him. That's why that verse is so important. 
you would think that he would now stop and write his first book, How I Won the City of Antioch to Christ. With his picture. But what does he do in verse 25? He leaves. You see, if God is doing it, it's really not about the instrument. It's really not about the man or the woman. If God is doing it, guess what's going to happen? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It will not. It's his work. So he, he leaves for Tarshish. I don't know. Do you still have that map up there, my brother? I told you. I, yeah. Can you, can you see where, can you just kind of go up where Antioch is and go all the way over to where Tarshish is? Can you see that over there? So he's, he's, going, he's going quite a distance. He's going to the hometown of Saul. Thank you. Thank you very much. And verse 26 has the word uh, that we would normally, the word is found in your English text, but it's to, to find by a discovery. He didn't know exactly where he was. He discovers him, brings him to Antioch, and it happened that for an entire year they met with the church and they taught a considerable crowd. And the disciples were first called Christians, Christians in Antioch. This, this is the greatest definition of teaching for me. It's, it's taking truth and teaching people and pressing people to Jesus so that the outside world says, I think they look like Christ. I think they look like Jesus. This is not something that they called themselves. They were called by the outside pagan world of, of uh, Antioch. These are Christians. These are Christians. Look over, if you will, chapter 13, verse 1. During this time of teaching, a church is formed. Verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church. That was there. This is incredible. Prophets? Teachers? And it lists some names. Verse 2, while they're ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, see how the, the Spirit's working? Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And so they fasted, they prayed, they laid their hands on them, and they send them away. And you know what happens in chapter 13 and chapter 14. It's the first missionary journey, and Paul now receives his new name, was Saul, now Paul. And it's an amazing story. So Acts 13, Acts 14 is two years of church history, A.D. 47 to A.D. 49, two years of church history. At the end of this time, turn to the end of chapter 14, they're going to come back to the church that sent them out at Antioch. Chapter 14, all the way to the end. Look at verse 26. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been committed. Notice, that word grace just finds itself all the time and connected with Antioch. For the work they'd fulfilled. And when they arrived, they began to gather the church together, and they rehearsed all the things that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. You remember that? small, packed-out house in Caesarea with military and friends and relatives, it now has exploded. And it's outside the land of Palestine. It's exploding. 
The door of faith, it has swung wide open. And guess what? Ethnics from everywhere are coming to Jesus. And so they spend time there. So, as I think about this, can I just conclude with these thoughts? Three thoughts I jotted down. One is this. Brothers and sisters, God has a plan. Listen carefully. God has a plan to reach this human world with the gospel. He's not delegating angels with a megaphone up there. He's designating us. Us. I think when my son came back after his first term, or first year, over in that Arab state, he comes back and he said, I'll never forget, he said, you know, I found out so much. I was just blown away. He said, I met one guy who comes from the capital of this state. And outside the capital, there are these little villages. And he's in one of those small villages. And in that village, he told me, he says, he's a a little Bible college. I said, really? Yes. And so Wesley said, I asked him, I said, what, 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 what are you doing? Tell me about it. And he said, well, it's really not anything like you Americans would appreciate. Hmm. But he said this, every week I have a hundred people in our little area of that village in what I call a Bible college that I'm teaching the Word of God under, under the shadow of the capital of this Arab state. Humbling? There are no names. That's it. That's it. It's not your bank account. (laughs) It's not your retirement plan. It's not mine. It's God wants to move. He has a plan. His plan is to reach the, the world with the gospel. So you want to be a part of it? Hey, you can sign up. And I'll use you. The second thing that really challenged me about this church at Antioch is this, is that God's plan has two parts to it. Part number one is the transformation of people who are now one-time people of the world, one-time people of religion, but now they are transformed into people of grace. They believed and they turned. So God's plan is to begin with your life not your words. Because your neighbor can hear your words. Your boss can hear your words. But what gives power and authority to my life and to your life is this. It's not what I say or what somebody else says I said. It is the the authentication of your life that you believe and that belief now causes a transformation, this epistrepho, this turning around and going another direction. That's part one of God's plan. God's plan of the gospel begins with you. (laughs) Transformation. And then part two is God's plan is to take transformed people and to bring them into a community that we call today a local church. So it brings it into a community of local church. So then this local church, which is full of people who have believed and turned, you bring them together, and the power of this means that you are a body. And what does that mean? That you tell the world or your neighborhood, 
by the way that you're living, by the way that you're acting, and by what you do, and what you value, what you don't value, you tell the world, Jesus is alive. <laughs> I had a friend, he's with the Lord now. He was a brilliant mind. And uh, he had on his license plate, he lives. And so he pulls into the gas station right here. Pulls into the gas station, one of these gas stations. And it was at a time when this gas station, you could do either self-serve or they actually had people who served you. How many, can you go back that far? You know, can you go back that far? And a guy comes around to the side and said, hey, I noticed, uh, I noticed your license plate. You know, I believe that too. I really believe Elvis lives. <laughs> See, he takes, he takes a group of people who have been transformed, who are a bunch of no-names, and he brings them together into a group. And this group makes an impact on the world. Adnarm and Ann Judson are the first foreign missionaries from North America. They set sail February 19, 1812 for India. Little did they know their lives were destined for Burma. That's Myanmar today. Their path would slog through suffering and anguish and death. Courtney Anderson vividly chronicles their hardships in her book, To the Golden Shore. If you've never read it, you need to read it, but it's hard to get through. Three of their children died in infancy. Judson was imprisoned and tortured beyond human imagination for 20 months. And then Ann Hordley dies, October 24, 1826, battling months of disease and stress. After Anne's death, Adnaim lived in despair for about four years. He seems to have lost his spiritual footing. He who was known for his tidiness and cleanliness went out, dug a grave in a lion-infested jungle, sat beside it for days. He stared into the dark hole and contemplated the stages of the body's decay in gruesome details. He thought of his wife, wife's body decaying. He wrote on the third anniversary of Anne's death these words, quote, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not, end quote. Though God's grace eventually rescued and restored the spirit and mission of Adnaim, quote, sadness shadowed his spirit, end quote. However, God still had another 20 years of productivity for him in Burma. Without realizing it, his path of suffering prepared him for an extraordinary ministry in Burma until he died April 12, 1850, at the age of 62. Before Adnarm and Anne arrived in Burma, there were no known Christians. At his death, there were over 200,000 believers. They were studying the Bible in their own language because of the tireless translation work of this man who had suffered so much. Brothers and sisters, God has a plan to reach the world with the gospel. And he uses transformed people as they come together in local assemblies that magnify transformation. So life is not about our comfort. I love what Irvin Wadle said many, many years ago. He's with the Lord. He had a, an amazing ministry, a small, tiny mission ministry in Georgia. He said this, time 
is for employment. Eternity is for enjoyment. Let's not confuse that. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to look into your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our pathway. Thank you for our church. Thank you for the the 21 churches that are involved in the ministry of VBTS this semester. We don't take this for granted. So I pray that you would help us as the founding church to this ministry. That we would see our significant place and that you would use us, unnamed people, to be able to reach our world with the gospel. So, Lord, would you help us, we pray, to capture the church at Antioch. And you would use these feeble words to accomplish in our hearts together collectively. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for our pastor. Thank you for our pastoral staff or our deacons. I pray that you would encourage them, build them up, protect them, help them. Thank you for other pastors in this area. Who's, there are some other church members are in this service now. Encourage these pastors. Bless them. Build them up. Because of the ministry of those who are studying what it means to take the gospel to the world. We love you today. In Jesus' name.